and we are getting real close to finishing the book of Genesis. And in case you haven't heard, when we do finish Genesis, uh, we'll basically start off uh, this next year, which isn't that far away, right? Uh, we're going to march to the book of John. Take a little uh, break, if you will, from following the quote-unquote Torah portions. I've enjoyed it, but once again, it's, it is difficult. It's difficult for me because I'm uh, a teacher. I, I teach expositorily through the Scriptures. You get big chunks of passages, and it's very difficult to, to do it justice, in my opinion. But anyways, we're, we're going to march to the book of John, and there are no time limits. <laughs> so we'll take our time. Uh, just depending on where we are in, in the passage. Uh, and so I have no idea how long it'll take us to, to finish the book of John. Uh, we'll get through it when God says so, okay? I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are. Uh, should be fun. So anyhow, if you have your notes, uh, this one is uh, this Parsha, this section, uh, this reading, uh, Vayagash. Um, and it, it just means, uh, and he drew near. So uh, as Susan was sharing with our kids uh, prior, we had the story of, you know, Joseph. You know, everybody remembers Joseph of many colors, a coat of many colors. Um, Joseph and Benjamin uh, are the last two children um, of Rachel, um, Israel's wife, the one that, the one that he loved, um, that he wanted to marry at the beginning. And then everything got messed up. Um, and Joseph is the one that had the dreams. And all of his brothers were like, you mean you're really going to rule over us? And we spent some time, if you remember, we talked about the issue of the birthright. Um, and that was really with Jacob and Esau and what all that meant. And so uh, Israel ends up with 12 boys. And this birthright issue, uh, it ends up getting passed down to Judah. Um, Reuben, his firstborn, uh, had sex with one of his concubines, one of his, uh, one of the ladies, not concubine, but, and uh, shamed Judah, so he lost his birthright. Simeon and Levi were uh, violent men. They're the ones that headed up the uh, revolt against Shechem and murdered all those men. Uh, and then Judah was technically the fourth born. So this issue of the birthright and all that is basically getting passed down to Judah. That's important to know as you're going to see what unfolds. So what's happened up till now, um, now Joseph is uh, in charge of everything in Egypt. He's gotten married and he has two sons. Do you remember the names of his sons? Manasseh. And what? Ephraim. Okay? Why is that important? Well, because Joseph and his descendants are, are a lot of the times referred to as Ephraim. Uh, and these numbers, as far as counting the 12, gets a little confusing sometimes because you've got Manasseh and Ephraim and a lot of times, Joseph and Ephraim are two terms that become interchangeable when you're listing the 12, okay? So 
Ephraim is also, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I want you to be thinking because I want you to see some things before I say it. Ephraim is usually also referred to as the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, Ephraimites. The two southern tribes are usually referred to as the house of Judah. Joseph is the father of Ephraim, and he ends up having a conversation with Judah. And these two nations are still to this day at at odds with each other uh, of the two tribes of Israel. Does that make sense? So that's where we are, and this is titled, And He Drew Near, because the one that's drawing near to Joseph, they still don't know who he is, uh, is Judah. Or I've got it here in the Scriptures version, it's Yehuda, because once again, there's no J sound in Hebrew. So, uh, and I've got a lot more stuff in here for you today to look at than we're really going to cover, but it's here for your resources. So starting in verse 18 of Genesis 44, it says, And Yehuda came near to him, that's Joseph, and said, O my master, please let your servant speak a word in my master's hearing, and do not let your displeasure burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. There's something else fascinating about what we're about to look at. You might want to jot this down somewhere, but they say that in all of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, this conversation or actually speech that Judah is about to give to his brother Joseph is the longest speech in the Torah. Now, there's obviously times when Moses is talking and teaching and things like that. But this is the longest, quote-unquote, between two people, if you will, a speech given in all of the Torah. And Judah is the one that comes to him and says, Oh, my master, please. What I want you to notice, and you might jot this down somewhere, is that at this point, Judah, Yehuda, is humbling himself before... uh, the regent, the leader of Israel, and he says that to me, it's like I'm speaking to Pharaoh. And what you're going to see here is this incredible exchange uh, from Judah to Joseph, basically humbling himself and admitting uh, some very important things. It's like he's asking He's come full circle from where he was. And I've got this other reference down below this. But to me, it's this picture of repentance. What does the Scripture say? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. He calls us, but He requires us to... It's the Hebrew word is teshuva, which means... It doesn't simply mean stop doing what you're doing. It means to turn around and go back where you came from. It means to turn around and turn to God, not just say, I'm sorry for what I did and I'm going to change my ways. 
It means I'm going to turn back and go back to where I started. And that's what we're going to see here is this incredible picture because here we've got Judah coming near to Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph yet, but he's coming near to him and he's begging him, please give me a chance to speak. And as I do, please don't let your anger burn against me because I consider you to be like Pharaoh. He's like, you're in charge. I get it. You have the ability to speak and take my life. I got nothing. Will you please just let me speak to you? So then let's just carry on. I jump down to verse 27. It's in the middle of this conversation and this speech that he's giving uh, to uh, Joseph. He's reminding him. He starts off with like, okay, I start at the beginning. You asked us if we had a father. You asked us if we had another brother. I said, yes, we do. We've got a brother. He's back home. Our father's old. He's continuing on with all of that conversation. And now uh, it is also important, though. I don't have that verse down here, but it's important to notice that he does refer to Benjamin as his brother. And in their conversations in the past, they did say, and we did have another brother, but he's gone. It's important. You get to verse 27. It says, and this is where he's saying to this. He goes, then your servant, uh, my father, he said to us. Now he's referring to what Israel said to them when they get back. He says, you know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me. And I said, truly he is torn, torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. And if you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you shall bring down my gray hair with evil to the grave. Verse 30. And now, if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, since his own life is bound up in his life, then it shall be when he sees that the boy is not with us that he's, he's going to die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with evil to the grave. Right now, he's also admitting that his father had a favored wife that was not his mother. Judah, the uh, rights of the firstborn and the birthright have been passed down to Judah because of these other events that have happened. He really is now the one in charge. But he's admitting humbly to this person that he doesn't think he knows, my father had two sons by the wife that he really loved, and his life is bound to those two boys. He's admitting in his heart that there are two among the twelve. One's dead, he thinks. Uh, but these two boys are more important than me. It's what he's basically saying. And he's literally saying, if I go back without him, I'm going to die. I mean, my, our father's going to die, and it's going to be evil, my evil. I've guaranteed that I'd bring him back. 
I, and he's saying, I cannot go back without him. I can't do it. Now, I, I put this other verse down here because I want you, you have to understand who's been these active agents and what's going on. Simeon and the others, they hated Joseph. They wanted to kill him. But Judah steps up. So I put this reference here for you in, in chapter 37. It's verses 26 and 28 so that you can see who the spokesperson becomes. Judah, or Yehuda said to his brothers, what would we gain if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our flesh. And his brothers listened. Turn the page. And men, Midianite traders, passed by, so they pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Mitzrayim, which is Egypt. So the one that came up with the idea, let's not kill him, let's sell him, was who? It was Judah, Yehuda. He's the one that came up with this idea. Some would say, what's well, because, and he said this, you know, you know we really shouldn't sell uh, or we shouldn't uh, kill our brother. And, but the interesting thing is what he said was, how's that going to benefit us? What he did say was, how about if we sell him? So they do, and they get like 20 pieces of silver. Who else sold their brother for silver and ends up being killed and put in a hole in the ground? Judas. The comparisons here, what we're going to see between these two boys that are now grown men, Jesus and Israel is huge, huge. Um, if we continue on so that you can see what Judah, what Yehuda is saying to Joseph, you get to verse 32, it says, For your servant went guarantee for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall be a sinner before my father forever. He's, he's laying it all out, isn't he? He says, and now please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a slave to my master and let the boy go up with his brothers. For how do I go up to my father if the boy is not with me, lest I see the evil that would come upon my father? So what is he saying here? He's literally saying and he, he has no idea that this is not going to come to fruition. After everything that Judah, Yehuda has been through, remember he's lost two sons that died, uh, was supposed to have given uh, the widow of his son, you know, to his youngest son. He wouldn't do it. Y'all remember that story? Uh, anyhow... So he has seen grief upon grief upon grief upon grief in his own life. Remember, you reap what you sow. Um, it, what we're doing has a tendency to come back, and everything in history is cyclical, uh, even on a personal level, on a national level, and on and on and on. So what he's saying is, 
please let this boy go back because if he goes back, my dad's going to die. This is the one who originally was okay with, let's just go ahead and torment our dad because whatever. We'll tell him that an animal killed him and we'll take some money. Now, after everything that he's experienced and all the stress he's been under with all of this that's been going on, he's like, please take me as your servant rest of my life. Just let the boy go back home to dad. The side part of that story was that Benjamin was accused of stealing, if you remember, but they hid that in his sack. And all of this has been done by Joseph to try them. Watch this. He's trying to find out if they have changed. Are are these people that are supposed to be my brothers, are they still the same guys that threw me in that hole? And I screamed all night long for them to let me out, and they wouldn't do it. And then they sold me into slavery. And then he went through all that other junk. And and then now he is where where he's... where he is. He's in charge of all Israel because of what God's been doing. And so he's trying to find out, have they changed? Or are they the same? And what he's learning now from Judah, that's why it's important to understand who's talking to who here. Judah, let me do it this way. Judah is talking to Joseph, Ephraim. Judah is talking to Joseph. Judah's had a problem. Ephraim's been in exile. Whoa. Ephraim's been in, and still is, was 10 lost tribes, in exile. Judah is talking to Joseph and basically saying, I, we can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't cause my father any more damage. Take me instead. It's at that point in chapter 45, it says that Yosef was unable to restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he called out, have everyone go out from me. No one stood with him while Joseph himself made himself known to his brothers. Verse 2, And he wept aloud in the Mitzrites, or Egyptians, and the house of Pharaoh heard it. You have to kind of let that sink in for a second. He wailed uncontrollably to where everybody outside could hear him. It's been 22 years since they threw him in the pit. Um, He wails uncontrollably. And he says, I'm Yosef. And then he goes, is my father still alive? And his brothers, they were totally unable to answer him. They're like, can you imagine? They had something that they had done that they had been harboring for 22 years. 
basically murder. They thought that he was dead. There's no way he could survive where he was headed. And this leader says, everybody out. And he just breaks down wailing, crying. And he starts speaking to them as they understood him. And he goes, I am your brother. Please tell me my father really is still alive. They're, they're, they can't even answer him. They, they, they were just literally trembling before him. Verse 4, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And when they came near, he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Then look what he says. And now do not be grieved or displeased with yourselves. Because you sold me here for Elohim, God sent me before you to preserve life. For two years now, the scarcity of food has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there is neither plowing nor harvesting. And Elohim sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to give life to you by a great escape. Basically, Judah comes and humbles himself before them, before him. Joseph realizes they've changed. And I want you to notice, after he says, I am your brother, you sold me into Egypt, and then what does he say? Don't be grieved or displeased with yourself. Two things here. God has called us to forgive, has He not? That we are to forgive others, and at what level are we to forgive others? Y'all know this answer. It's not a trick question. To the same level that God has forgiven us, right? <clears throat> and here's a picture of Joseph being like Yeshua. He was sold for silver. Jesus was sold for silver. He was considered dead, put in a hole, if you will. Jesus was dead, put in a hole, and gone. He's revealed to his brothers, but he's only revealed to them after they have repented. He's not just revealed to them like, well, whatever. But when they repent, he's like, here I am. Um, it's the same thing with you and I. God calls us, but you and I have to repent before God really shows himself to us and comes into our heart, right? He doesn't come into our heart because of any deeds we do or anything else. He comes into our heart when we say, you know what, God, I got nothing. I don't have anything. Please forgive me. You're it. I'm nothing. 
Whatever you say, I'm good with that. Just forgive me. That's how repentance works. There's a long list, and I didn't even, I didn't even put them down here. You can go home and Google it. The comparisons between Joseph and his event with his brothers and Jesus and his brothers and the world and what happened. There's like, I found one list that was over 60, I believe, comparisons. It's just, it's absolutely mind-boggling. But here he says, I don't want you to uh, be grieved about yourself or hate yourself because watch this. God sent me here in front of you to preserve life. Ever been, uh, has anyone ever offended you? Nah, nah, I didn't think so. Um, We're called to forgive. Remember they even asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive? And he goes, 70 times seven. In other words, an endless number, an infinite number. Just keep forgiving, keep forgiving, keep forgiving. Hold no grudge. Did Joseph have a right to hold a grudge? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Yes, he did. I've got this little note down here just so that you can see something a a little interesting. It's right out of those books I've been telling you that are really, really good to get. They're called Walk. It says, The famine hits hard. Egyptians are forced to sell everything for food, including all their silver, all their livestock, and all their land. How ironic that the Egyptians lose everything. Finally, they are forced to sell themselves into bondage as slaves in order that they may stay alive and not die. Joseph, Joseph, once deprived of food and sold for silver by his brothers, only to be enslaved by the Egyptians, now rations food, holds the silver, enslaves the Egyptians, and saves his family from the effects of of the famine. Here's something else that's absolutely fascinating. Once this happens, all of Joseph's family come to him and they are put in the most choice of land there in Egypt as shepherds. Long story about that, but the bottom line is they get to come basically when everything else is horrible and everybody's dying, they get to come to a promised land. This one little area where the Nile River was still coming down and there was some grass and stuff stuff there where you could raise sheep and animals, but they couldn't grow any crops anywhere else because of the lack of rain and the famine. But at least right there in Goshen, they were able to survive and raise their animals. Um, kind of sounds like us making it to the promised land. When everything else is so bad, and God goes, come here. I'm going to take care of you. Um, what, I want, what I want you to see before we chase something else here <clears throat> is there's this issue of these two brothers and an issue of forgiveness, and an issue of being humble. On both sides, a change of heart. 
and a desire to come together and watch this and realizing that no matter what else has happened, who's been in charge? God is the one that's been in charge. Do you ever think that maybe sometimes God allows you to be offended just so that God can knock some of your rough edges off? Because He could fix it where no one would get offended, right? I mean, sometimes God brings some guy your way that is a jerk. Can anybody relate? Um, And sometimes He's doing that just to work on you and also put you in just a different position so that He can do what He wants to do in your life. We get so caught up in the now we kind of lose sight of that big picture. We get so caught up in what's happening right this second, and we focus on us so much that we lose sight of the fact that you and I aren't in control. Right? I mean, were you in control when that person offended you? Because they did something. Maybe they did do something evil, mean, and nasty. Anybody here ever have somebody do evil, mean, and nasty, either to you or against you or your family or what? That happens, right? And those people are, well, yeah, they're jerks. Well, let's go ahead and say that. But why would God allow that to happen? You weren't in control. It just happened. You have to go, well, God, you know what's going on. I don't, so I'm going to trust you. Or you could hold on to the offense and try to fix it and try to control your circumstances. How's that working out? Because you can't, right? And that's why God says you and I are to forgive when we are offended because it's going to happen. And when people do bad things, don't hold on to that. Watch this. Because when you do, did you know that there's actual now scientific evidence that you're killing yourself when you do that? Did you know that? Your risk of cancer goes through the roof when you're a bitter, unforgiving person. It's a scientific fact. It just skyrockets. The list goes on and on. That's why God says, forgive. Get rid of it. Get it out. Let it go. We think it means if I do this, then you're off the hook. What it's really saying is, You're letting go of your control of it. You're letting them off of your venom and therefore getting your venom out of you. This whole idea of forgiveness, it's getting it out of you. I don't know if you realize that, but in that original language, there's this idea of forgiveness is getting this thing out of you and letting it go. And you're admitting God's in control and He'll deal with it whether He blesses them or curses them out of your hands. Right? It's better for you and it glorifies Him because you're admitting, I'm not in control. He's in control and He's going to mean it for our good. Does that make sense? So the other thing that I thought was absolutely fascinating about this story is that it being about these two tribes. I had never really zoned in on that until I was studying for this, and I went, whoa, 
hold on a minute. And I'm telling you, I had one of those moments where God was like, yeah, that's it, son. You're on the right track. And I was like, whoa, okay. Really? Um, Because here's what's fascinating. That's the only part of this, this section that I wanted to focus on because I want you to see something. All around the world right now, right now, all around the world, Orthodox Jewish people for this last week and on Shabbat are studying the portions we're studying, including what's called the Haaf Torah, which is the extra readings to the Torah out of the writings and prophets in what we would call the Old Testament. This section is chosen to go with this story about Joseph and his brothers and all that happened and all that transpired. Uh, Pharaoh tells Joseph, because he hears all this, he goes, listen, send clothing, send, if you will, wagons and chariots and stuff, and bring them here. I told Sonia, I I got real frustrated today because I know there's this verse in the Bible because I mentioned it not that many weeks ago, and I couldn't find it today. Remember us talking about how that in the greater Exodus, when everybody's going back, it says that the kings and the people of the earth will carry the people there. I couldn't find that. But that's exactly what's happening here with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's people and Joseph because Pharaoh, remember, he heard the weeping and everything, and he finds out what's going on. These are your brothers. This is your family. And he goes, go get them. As a matter of fact, we will send the resources to get them here. Wow. Just like God sending his angels and his people and whatever to do whatever is necessary to get us to the place where he wants us during when? This greater exodus. And they escaped by a what? A great escape. <laughs> the, the correlations can't be more, more strongly seen. But then this next section is out of Ezekiel. And this section is connected with the story about Joseph. So you pick it up here in Ezekiel 37. It's verses 15 through 28. I just want to read this for you. Verses 15 through 28. And it says, And the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, And you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and ride on it for Yehuda and for the children of Israel, his companions, meaning everybody in Israel that's connected to Judah. Then take another stick and ride on it for Joseph. Look at this. The stick of Ephraim. There it is. And for all the house of Israel, his companions, meaning everybody that is saying they're aligned with Ephraim. Turn the page. Then bring them together for yourself into one stick, and they shall become one in your hand. So there's anybody here about this prophecy of the two sticks? It's the two sticks representing the two houses of Israel. He says, ride on it one for the tribes or the house of Judah and ride on one for the house of Ephraim or Joseph. And then you put the two sticks in your hand and they're going to become one. Verse 18, And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Won't you show us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Master or the Lord, Yehovah, See, I am taking the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand uh, of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his companions, and I shall give them unto him with the stick of Yehuda, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. 
This is talking about the restoration of the two nations and bringing them into one nation. And the sticks on which you write shall be in your hand before their eyes. And speak to them. Thus says the Master Yahweh, See, I am taking the children of Israel from among the Gentiles, wherever they have gone, and shall gather them from all around, and I shall bring them into their land. And I shall make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one sovereign or king shall be sovereign or king over them all. And let them no longer be two nations. And let them no longer be divided into two reigns or kingdoms. <coughs> and they shall no longer defile themselves with their idols, nor with their disgusting matters, nor with any of their transgressions. And I shall save them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned. And I shall cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I be their Elohim, their God. While David, or Dawid, my servant, is sovereign over them. That's referring to the Messiah, Yeshua, the son of David, from the lineage of David. And they shall have one shepherd and walk in my right rulings and guard my laws and shall do them. When is that going to happen? When he brings them all back at the end of time. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Yaakov, Israel, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell in it, they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant, Dawid, will be their prince forever. <clears throat> There's where you see where he's, he's calling the Messiah David, or this, if you will, his servant David. And I shall make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. It is with them, and I shall place them and increase them and shall place my set-apart place, or, what's, or it would be tabernacle, in their midst forever. And my dwelling place shall be over them, and I shall be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. And then look at this. And the Gentiles shall know that I, Yehovah, am setting Israel apart. When, I, when my set-apart place is in their midst forever. This is when they're studying this this week. This week. Connected with the story of Joseph, and, that, and that's why with Joseph and Ephraim. That's why I was bringing that out. <clears throat> but do you all know what happened in Israel this week? They dedicated the altar that's going to be used in the next temple. They dedicated it, consecrated it basically, making it fit for use. The newly established Sanhedrin oversaw it. Basically gave their sanction for it to happen but they said, you're not sacrificing a lamb here. We'll have, a, we'll have World War III if you do that. So they made them kill the lamb somewhere else. They brought all the pieces in there and burnt at least part of it on that altar right next to the old wall of the old city. Not at the Temple Mount, but as close as they could get and still be outside. So here's the deal. Here's what I want to bring out. I posted that. 
Because I'm like, look, look, this is a big deal. And every single person I see talking about it is blasting Israel for it and challenging me for posting it. And I hear people say that what happened was a blasphemy. I hear people say, well, now, you know, there is no more need for sacrifice and all of this is wrong, blah, blah, blah. We know it's prophecy and it's going to happen, but it, and, and, on, and on and on and on. And I'm like, okay. I, I, and these are, some of these are from people that, are, that I highly respect. I mean, they're very intelligent Bible teachers, you know, on and on and on. But I'm like, oh, how can we miss this so horribly? And I was even trying to explain them like, look, everybody trips up because they think this is about salvation. Everybody here should understand because I've been on this, right? You even know where I'm going. That the sacrifice has never saved anybody. Ever. Ever. They were never even intended for salvation. Ever. And we're told in Scripture exactly what they were for. To keep what? God's house clean when he required dirty people to come in. That's putting it real blunt and real simple, but to keep his house clean when he required people to come in. And we know that there's another temple coming and the nation of Israel is going to oversee or whatever and whatever else is going to happen, but it's going to get built. The big problem is that people keep tripping over this <clears throat> And even Ephraimites still fighting Judah. And what ends up happening is that when people have those attitudes, in most cases, not every time, but what I'm finding is that in most cases, they are anti, and I'll have to explain this, but they are anti-Zionists. What do I mean by that? Well, they, they now have found a real slick way to get around this dirty word called anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism means you hate Jews like Hitler. And they're all like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't hate Jews. We just hate Israel. <laughs> yeah, you can laugh. But that, and, that's, and they're like, no, 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 that's legitimate. If you want to be a Jew, that's fine. It's just that no Jew has a right to live in this place that they're calling Israel, it's really occupied land, and you, you, you have no right to a homeland because, well, you never were there. Any, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and so they're like, we're just anti-Israel, which is anti-Zionism. And they think that people like me are idiots and heretics uh, and that I believe in legalism and animal sacrifices for salvation and on and on, and it's just so messed up, and you go, okay, um, you ever get that feeling like, I'm going to stop hitting this brick wall with my head, and I'm going to turn and walk this other way, because arguing with a fence post just doesn't work, right? But for you people, I want you to understand that there is a massive difference in those two things, and God is fulfilling a prophecy with the people of Israel proving that he's God. And I wanted you to know that this section is studied this week because they're still looking for this to happen. 
This is one of the things where they say, well, you see, Yeshua couldn't have been the Messiah because he hasn't restored the kingdom yet. And there's not peace on earth. And they haven't beat their swords into plowshares and all that. So we're waiting. But did you know that the Jewish people have always been looking for what they now call two messiahs? A messiah ben Yosef and a messiah ben David. A messiah ben Yosef is the suffering servant you find in Isaiah 53. But then you have the Messiah ben David, which is the conquering king that's going to come and bring peace on the earth. They, never, they haven't been able to figure out or accept the fact that he could have done it in one physical being and come twice. But they know that there's two pictures, and so they're still looking for this Messiah ben David. And the only way to really work that out theologically for them is, they said, and Israel must be Messiah ben Yosef because, look, we've been suffering now for 3,500 years. And God calls us His Son, so we've got to be the Son, and so we must be that Messiah picture. That's how they come up with it. Folks, it's the same way where we Christians have come up with all kinds of weird garbage to try to explain away a problem that's not even in the Scriptures. And we come up with like a pre-trib rapture and all this other stuff to, because we think that's going to bring Israel to jealousy. That's not what's doing it. What's doing it is us. You and I and people like us that God is calling out and whistling for is causing them to go, excuse me? I don't understand. Um, And that when this happens, it says that what the Gentiles, meaning all the nations, that means everybody except Israel. When it says the Gentiles are nations, there's only two people groups in God's eyes on the earth. Did you know that? There's only two people groups. There's Israel, and then there's everybody else. A Hebrew word, you know, goyim, Gentiles, nations. Everybody is either of the nations or they're Israel. Uh, And he says that when he does this miraculous thing, that's going to be the sign that all the Gentiles in the world are going to go, God is God. And he has set apart this small group of people as his inheritance. Nowhere, anywhere in Scripture does it say what's going to happen is there's going to be this pre-trib rapture, people all over the world, millions and billions of people are going to go, and they're going to disappear Planes are going to fall out of the sky. Buses are going to crash. You're going to look over there and you're going to see clothes on the ground and you're going to see your husband's shaver rattling in the sink. That was a movie back in the 70s. Remember that? It's going to be rattling in the sink and everybody's going to be scared and there's going to be fires everywhere. And then everybody's going to go, oh, it really did happen. Those Christians were right. Nowhere does it say that in Scripture. What it does say is going to do something even more obvious. And then he's going to set apart and sanctify his people Israel. And he's going to bring everybody back. And he's going to miraculously save this remnant people. And he's going to prove to the world that he really is Yahovah. I included this uh, passage here out of Ephesians. Because I want you to see here our role in some of this. Because it says, in starting in verse 1, it says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. What does that sound like? It sounds like these Ephraimites that were scattered 
and following these pagan religions that we just got through reading, talking about in Ezekiel. It says, walking according to the course of this world, according to the ruler and the authority of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once lived in the lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, as also the rest. But Elohim, God, who is rich in compassion because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah by favor, you have been saved, or by grace, you have been saved. Turn the page with me. And raised up together, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenlies in Messiah Yeshua in order to show in the coming ages the exceeding riches of His favor and kindness toward us in Messiah Yeshua. When is He going to reveal that? Ages to come. For by favor or by grace you have been saved through belief, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, is the gift of Elohim. It is not by works so that no one will boast. If we got saved by works, we'd be bragging all the time. That's why as a church here, we're going to have to constantly be careful to not become legalistic and proud and Torah terrorists, and the list goes on and on. Well, you're not doing this right. You're not doing that right. You're not doing... Because guess what? Nobody's doing it right. If you're in Israel, you're still not doing it right. You can't. <laughs> uh, and so, and we're over here in exile, so we're doing what? We're doing our best. But nobody's doing it perfect. So, you know what? Just let it go. But, and you know what else I've found? Is it's amazing how many times the people that'll, that will argue a lot or try to call out other people, they've got a lot of other stuff messed up. I think that sounds like God saying, you might want to get that two before out of your eye before you worry about a speck over there. Because it's real easy to judge on superficial levels, isn't it? But then you really need to be living at home with somebody to see what's going on behind closed doors. And, and see what else is going on, you know. But, but we want to, you know, look good <laughs> and then try to help, have other people live up to ours. I don't want anybody here in this room to live up to the standard of Paul Henry. I want to make that perfectly clear. Why are you looking around? <laughs> he looked over at Sonia and somebody said, <laughs> uh, nobody here needs to be living up to my standard. I'm still figuring it out and mess up royally all the time all the time okay you need to be worried about you working out your salvation before God your walk before God according to what the scripture says according to what he's leading you according to your situation you need to walk that out with you and your God and your Bible Does that make sense but you know what hey if you've got it all figured out you're not making any mistakes, man. Come on down and make a list so we can try to measure up. I'm going to try to measure up to the Bible. Okay? Um, so he says we've been saved in verse 8. Uh, we've been saved by faith um, through belief. It's not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works of anyone boast. Now look at this. For we are His workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua, under good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. 
the whole emphasis through this whole section is, if it were not for God reaching out to you and me, we'd still be dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God, headed straight for hell. Hopeless. Watch this. If God had not been already working to allow Joseph to get thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, end up in Potiphar's house, his wife falsely accusing, he ends up in jail, he's struggling in jail, he's in there for another three years. I think it was three years after he interpreted the dream of the baker and the cupbearer. Still in jail. For God to get him out at the right time for God to give Pharaoh a dream. Was Pharaoh saved? I don't think so. Can God use somebody that's not saved? Of course he can. All kinds of proofs of that in Scripture. So he gives Pharaoh a dream gives the answer to Joseph so that Joseph could be in charge of Egypt so that Joseph could save his family. His family didn't do anything to deserve it. Secondly, did Joseph really do anything to deserve all of that glory? Being thrown in a pit and everything else? You think he wanted out. But God worked all of that so that he could bring about salvation. This is why Yeshua's in there going, Lord, if there's any other way to, this cup can pass from me, please let it happen. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God is the one that's in control. And God is the one that's leading. Look at what it says here in Zechariah 12, 10. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, and, a, and please for mercy. He said he's literally going to pour out a spirit on, the, on basically the two tribes. And he's going to do it in such a way that they will cry out for mercy. So that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The, that reference is found also in John uh, when he was being betrayed and, and all of that other stuff. In John 19 where it says, For these took place that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, not one of his bones be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. God is telling us, when is that going to happen? when He brings the two tribes back together, when He pours out His Spirit on all mankind. And especially His remnant people bringing them back. And He's going to do it in such a way that everybody's going to be humbled. Um, and at that time, they're going to look on Him whom they have pierced. I grew up understanding this from a Christian theological perspective that when that's going to happen is when Jesus is coming down after the rapture and he's going to come down and they're going to go, oh no, we messed up. What it says here that he's going to bring them back. He's going to give them a spirit uh, to call out for mercy. And then it's when that happens, that's when they're going to see him. It's not 
in reverse order. I don't believe it's in reverse order. I think God's going to pour out His Spirit. He's going to be whistling for us and all of the Ephraimites, if you will, all the dispersed, all of God's people, whether you have Israeli blood in you or not, doesn't matter. God's going to call out for His remnant people. He's going to pull us all together. He's going to put on us a spirit of mercy and compassion. <clears throat> Ephraim and Judah are going to be reunited. And it says there that Judah will no longer harass Ephraim, and Ephraim will no longer be jealous of Judah. He's going to solve that problem and bring us all back together. And that when that happens, I think that's when Yeshua is going to show up and everybody's going to weep because we, I believe, are also going to remember all of our garbage when we were supposed to forgive and didn't. We're all going to realize I'm just like one of those 12 boys. And even though God said over and over and over again, forgive, 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 let it go, don't hold a grudge, on and on and on and on. Don't be easily offended, on and on and on. And yet that's exactly what happens in any given group all the time, isn't it? Now, I've got here, I didn't count how many, but there are, uh, looks like two and a half pages of nothing but a list of verses that deal with God gathering Israel back together. It's two and a half pages. Uh, if somebody want to count them real quick, I think there's like 20 or 30 or something in there. Um, these are all verses that are either the people crying out for this to happen. Most of them are literally prophecies of God saying, this is what I'm going to do. 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 And I'm going to bring all Israel back. Folks, that's the number one prophecy in your Bible. It's the most prominent prophecy in your Bible. Now, a simple question. <clears throat> if Israel, right now, the people in Israel, whatever you want to call them, if they are working together and they have built, which they have, all of the furniture, the articles, the clothing, the utensils, everything to perform sacrifices in a future temple. Um, <clears throat> And the Sanhedrin is already meeting. And Israel, and something happens. I think there'll have to be a calamity, actually. Some kind of calamity to happen uh, where Israel starts building this new temple. Whether or not the people that are involved in that are saved or not, for me, is a non-issue. The issue is this, if I, and, I, and I'm pretty sure this is not exhaustive. I just gave you two and a half pages of verses that deal with God saying, Israel's going to be divided. They're going to be two nations. The sign that I am God and that I am who I say I am and I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do is me bringing them back, bringing them back from the four winds of the earth um, 
if that's the case, then in my mind, I'll change this from a question to a statement. In my mind, to speak against Israel, even performing sacrifices or rebuilding the temple, to me, is speaking against the very name and integrity of God Almighty. Because he said, I will do it. I will do it based on the sheer fact that I exist. We covered that. I have spoken it. I've proclaimed it. I'm going to do it. Now, why am I making such a big deal out of this? Because guess what? It's about to get a lot worse. And you will be challenged on where you stand on these issues. Your family and friends, watch this, because it is getting rampant within the church and even messianic groups that are actually anti-Zionists. Even Jews in America that are anti-Zionists. And actually call them the synagogue of Satan. You can find this in Messianic teachers. And it will get worse. And why will I say, why do I say that? Because that is the number one prophecy all through Scripture, starting in Genesis all the way to Revelation, that God said, This is how this is going to work. Everybody's been hating me and fighting me. Fine. You want to serve the other gods? Go ahead and serve them. I'm going to take one man and make a nation out of that nation, and I'm going to prove to everybody that I am God and I am who I say I am through that nation. And that nation is also going to be just like everybody else. And they're going to rebel. They're going to rebel against me. They're going to get all split up. I'm going to get so mad I'm going to scatter them everywhere. I'm even going to do some things that should be impossible for me to solve the problem, meaning I'm going to divorce half of them. How am I going to remarry them if I've divorced them when in my own law I said I can't? Easy. I'm going to send the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to die, releasing them from the divorce decree. Therefore, I can remarry them. And then I'm going to scatter. They're still going to get scattered. How are you going to bring them all back? They don't even know who they are. Easy. He's God. He's God. And he can go, hey, 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 I want to tell you something. And it really rock your world. And then you go, you mean that's what the Bible says? Yeah. But the rest of the world isn't seeing it. And guess what? They're being influenced by the devil himself and don't know it. Even in the church, even in Messianic congregations. And they'll say, but I'm, I'm, I'm for Jews. I'm not a racist. I'm just anti-Zion, which what they don't understand is what they're saying is I'm anti-God. That's the blunt, ugly truth. And I'll go toe-to-toe with anybody that wants to argue this with me. But I won't do it on Facebook. It makes me really nuts. I'm this close to pulling the plug. The only reason why I don't is one chance to get one positive word out there for somebody that might listen. But all the other 
people. All the other people out there are making me nuts. And Sonia came home the other day, and I was so wound, I was wound up like a top. I'm like, don't, don't say it. I'm just, I, I want to go nuclear. <laughs> and I, I just, I got I to gotta get away. And so I, I'll, I'll just turn everything off, and I just turn on my praise and worship music and let it blast through the house to try to clean out, watch this, my head. Because I, I, I don't like drama. I like peace. I like just being me and God, man. Just can we just go hang out? Right? The world's got plenty of drama. And if people want to know the truth, I'll be glad to talk with them. But I'm not going to get into just dumb arguments when people don't really want to talk and reason and just want to argue bullet points instead of looking at the massive, massive weight of passages in their Bible that says the opposite of what they think it says. And, and, then, and then miss the whole point. And so I have, I have been really amazed at the number of people online talking about the dedication of this altar. And no, no one, not one person has said, well, you know those sacrifices were never meant for salvation and it has nothing to do with that. Watch this. The Jewish people pretty much know that. And they're expecting a Messiah. <laughs> they're waiting on a Messiah. And when, so anyhow, when you start talking about this, and then people get upset. So here's the deal. Uh, the offense, the anger, the uh, tension will get much, much worse. And it might get worse, watch this, with your own family and friends. And here's what you're going to have to decide. Do you want peace? And do you want it in your own life? Or do you want to just get sucked into that vortex of hate and venom? Because the Scripture says He's also going to pour out a Spirit on this earth that will take peace from the earth. We studied all this when we went through Revelation. He said he'll send a spirit of delusion on the people where they will literally believe a lie and black will be white, white will be black, truth will be a lie, a lie will be the truth. Doesn't that sound like America today? I mean, it's so, it's so backward and upside down, you go, I, I really feel like I'm in Alice in Wonderland. Literally. And for me, the only answer can be that he's already poured out a spirit of delusion. And if that's the case, and Satan hates Israel, why does he hate them? Because God said he's going to do this through Israel. And he also said he's going to do it in Jerusalem. And it's heating up. Um, you and I will have to make a decision. Are we going to be at peace and be at peace with each other and those that we can be at peace with? and try to point them to the truth, or are we going to get sucked into that vortex? And it might mean you have to unplug. I'm really dealing with a dilemma. If it were not for the possibility of trying to share a truth with people outside of you guys, out there on social media, I would pull the plug on every bit of it. Um, and just say, I'm just going to come hang out with you guys once a week. Everybody else, good luck. God hasn't really let me do that. And I'm like, oh, man, because it's, 
it's troubled waters out there. And, and I get sucked in a little bit. And so anyways, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, but uh, you're going to have to decide, you know, how, how you're going to approach this. And it's, it, it will get in your face. It's coming. I'm, I'm just trying to forewarn you so that you can prepare yourself because it's coming. There's no way around it. There's no way around this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come and... Uh, People are going to ask you where you stand on it. And here's the deal. You ever hear, you know, these are the days of Elijah? There's one problem. And anybody here like me say you believe that these are the days of Elijah? I got some, any, anybody here believe that? I mean, I, I do. There's one problem with that. Elijah lived during the times of uh, Jezebel and Ahab. Elijah was out there with 400 prophets of Baal, Baal Zebub. He was the only one, but he stood up. And so for there to be a, the days of Elijah means that those that God has called out, you're going to have to be an Elijah. Which means you cannot cave in to the pressure. This is what everybody else believes. This is what, all, this is what they're saying you're going to have to speak the truth when it comes your way, but you're also going to need to know what in the world you're talking about. And that's why these notes and what I've been trying to teach and why my book for you, I don't even know if it'll become a book, I have no idea, but I wrote it for you so that you could read it and study it and know what in the world your Bible actually says so that when this garbage hits, you'll know how to answer it without getting into a lot of other theological stuff because that's where they'll want to try to trip you up. So it's real easy to answer some of these questions. Israel shouldn't exist. Those are Ashkenazi Jews that are part of the synagogue of Satan. The list goes on and on. It gets really weird. And uh, so they shouldn't exist and all this other stuff and all these other people, they're the real Jews, blah, 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 blah. And you go, you can just let, let, them, let them talk. And you go, okay. Well, did you know that the number one prophecy in all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is this fact that God said He would choose Israel to be His nation, inheritance to be a light to the world, and that they would be actually symptomatic of the world. They would be split up everywhere. And then He said at the end of time He would bring them all back. That's the number one prophecy in all of Scripture. And let them answer. Say, well, go study it. If you don't know, evidently you don't, or you'd have answered it properly. Go study it and figure it out. Uh, and then you'll find out that if you're, so therefore, if you're speaking against the nation of Israel, you're speaking against God. I'm not saying all the people in Israel are perfect. And I'm not saying they haven't made even political errors and military errors and whatever. They don't get a free pass. I'm just saying the nation of Israel as an entity is a prophetic event in God's timetable and he's been the one behind all this stuff. Watch this. Even if he used ungodly people to birth the nation. Was Nebuchadnezzar a godly man? But he raised him up to bring judgment against his own people. We can, there's tons of examples of this. Does this make sense? So 
it's real easy to answer and keep it real simple and say, well, then if you're speaking against them and you don't want them to exist as a nation, then you don't want God to be successful in His prophecy. Oh, that's right. It's got to be done by the right people from your perspective. That's what you're saying. So you know better than God. Okay. That's an interesting opinion. See how I'm saying? You can, you can really diffuse it and keep it pretty simple without getting into a lot of crazy details. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you that 99.9% of the time, they're probably not going to want to, they're going to want to argue their details to try to win in a debate. Does that make sense? 